Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Bayerjean, and I am Dr. VR, and I invite you to register to my podcast to stay updated with new episodes when they're published. Simply hit the register link on Dr. VR's channel, as well as the bell icon next to it to be notified. For this 10th episode, I have the pleasure of having Thomas Wallner, who's a two-time Emmy Award winner and South by Southwest Interactive Award winner, producer, director, writer, and game designer working in feature film, television, games, and interactive media. He's also the director of and producer of The Polar Sea, the world's first long-format 360-degrees documentary film, and the founder of Liquid Cinema VR, which is a revolutionary gaze-triggered that allows uh, filmmakers, journalists, advertisers, and educators to create and distribute cinematic VR. Thomas, thank you for being with us this week. Glad to be here. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about your professional background? Yeah, I've, I've, um, I always like to think of myself of somebody who's worked uh, with linear storytelling, i.e. films, specifically in my case, uh, documentaries, feature documentaries that in general, uh, you know, explore the, the, you know, the human condition. And at the same time, I've had this parallel career of, of, um, dealing with interactive media and, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a while. So, you know, with the rise of, you know, in the beginning, it was, you know, CD-ROMs, uh, that promised you interactivity. And then later on, it was with the rise of the web, um, you naturally have, you know, pondered the great questions of how can this interactive medium be used, uh, for the sake of storytelling, not just presenting information. And in the course of, um, that work, which i.e. can you approach storytelling in an interactive manner, um, I worked with, a with, a um, business partner of mine, Patrick Crow at Xenophile Media, uh, to create interactive experiences that bit by bit uh, started going in the direction of alternate reality games. And um, alternate reality games are basically these distributed narratives across many platforms where anything goes. So, you know, part of the story might be the fax machine spewing something at you or emails, videos. Um, but we did a lot of projects that were tied in with television shows so that there was basically a way to make the television shows more immersive by extending them into your reality, right? Um, and that was a fantastic way to explore story and interactivity, um, which is what these Emmys are for. Um, and um, that, it, it, you know, as somebody who likes to stay at the cutting edge of, of this, you sort of you know, when you've explored a medium and something new comes along, uh, you go for the next frontier. And the next frontier was uh, immersive video. Um, it was something, I'm going to forget the year, I think it was like 2011 or so. I'm really terrible with dates. But, uh, uh, you know, somebody showed me a piece of immersive footage, uh, 360 video footage, and I had never seen it before. This was before the days where, you know, you would watch it in a headset. In, in fact, it was before the days of the, of, you know, this revolution that we're part of, or that we're all being swept up in called immersive media or XR. And to me as a filmmaker, who was very used to having a frame, a fixed frame. Um, it was just startling. Uh, to see a piece of video, so you know that's moving, and you can look around. I know it sounds banal now because we've all seen it on YouTube in, in various places, 
But I remember that sort of moment of magic uh, where you look at it and you go, how, how, how is this possible? <laughs> like, how, how, you know, just the same feeling that people get or got or that I got and I'm sure you got mm -hmm. when we first looked at, looked at virtual reality. You know, it's like, oh, this is new. Anyway, so we're not quite there yet in my, <laughs> my story, but um, so looking at this sort of 2D version, I mean, flat screen version of looking at 360, basically we were used to, you know, quick time movies, and, but not something that actually moved. Um, and at that time, I was uh, one of the, I would say, minor directors in a television series called... Um, uh, the Polar Sea, mm -hmm. which was actually a look at climate change in the North. It was produced through TV Ontario and Arte. And the head of Arte, Wolfgang Bergman, um, said, hey, you know, you're, you're this Emmy guy <laughs> who does attractive things. Uh, can you do something attractive to make people feel the Arctic? And um, I said, why? Yes, in fact, you know, I think we could do something with 360 video. What's that? Oh, let me show you. Ooh, this is neat. So... Um, and that was a real challenge at the time because, uh, you know, in the beginning days of, of 360 video, uh, the equipment wasn't really there, uh, or if you could access it, it was incredibly expensive and very low performance. And around that time, people started doing 360 videos with GoPros. And, and, um, and it was sort of like you had to build and figure out everything from scratch to make it work, at least in a way that you could go to the Arctic and spent 30 shooting days, um, you know, putting something together because the cameras you could rent were $20,000 a day at the time and certainly wouldn't work in the cold. Mm -hmm. So we had to really uh, pioneer a lot of that stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, though, it was really, um, it, you know, it's one thing, go to the Arctic, shoot the stuff, bring it back, stitch it together, i.e. raw 360 footage of the things you're, you're doing. But then as a filmmaker, I wanted to tell a story. And at the time, I would say there weren't a lot of stories. There were, you know, Red Bull videos of someone with a, you know, wingsuit jumping off a cliff. And that was just cool because it was in 360. And if there was a story, somebody would just sort of narrate over the whole thing. And, and to me, as a filmmaker who's used to juxtaposition and, and, and you know, cutting and the ability to create flow and emotion, this was a real challenge. Um, so... So I don't know if you want me to just quickly say what the challenges are, or maybe you're on. Well, absolutely. Yeah, well, okay. I love that. So, so as a filmmaker, there's a there's a couple of there's a couple of things here that you realize. I mean, what was interesting from the shooting process was that it was. I mean, I was around in the days where you would actually still shoot on film, and so this was not unfamiliar. In those days, you did not have a monitor, so you would shoot it. It would get developed, and then you would see your rushes. And this was very similar. So you were, not only were you um, blind in terms of what the 360 camera was shooting, you were usually hiding behind a rock. So you didn't even see what the camera was shooting, even from afar. So it's like being double blind, basically. Um, and that's, that's really fun stuff. So I was kind of used to not seeing things, so that was fine. But the thing that I wasn't used to and that other people weren't used to is that with the 360 medium, especially now if you look at it in VR on a headset. You know, I'd like to say that space is space and time is time. In the sense that um, the difference is that when you're shooting a 2D film um, that's cut together to tell you a story, there is a mechanism in place called the suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And the suspension of disbelief allows you 
to sort of pretend that's reality because regular 2D media is like a metaphor for reality and we're all very con conversant in it. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we, we've been reading cuts and, and, you know, 2D films since we were born, right? Mm -hmm. So we all know that's not a literal depiction of reality and it's a very highly codified language. We just don't notice because we're all really used to, you know, speaking it basically. Just like, you know, you and I are talking here right now. I can make you aware of the fact that my mouth is moving, sending sound waves through the air into your ears, which are weird code that light up centers in your brain, right? That, that then create this reality. And all former media before virtual reality is this sort of metaphor of reality. It evokes that reality it is not reality itself. So if you're reading a novel, you know, with words, or you're watching a movie, or, you know, listening to a podcast. It's using something else to depict uh, reality. Uh, the closest being uh, film, because it's a photographic reality, but it's missing the third dimension. So now, suddenly, you know, as a filmmaker, I've got this medium in my hands that is spatial. And it's even more spatial when you put your headset on. Uh, because although you can't move into the scene, you see this 360 video around you and you're just enamored by it. Now I said space is space and time is time. So, um, you know, in film, you can condense time through montage. You can speed up time. You can make time slower by the pace of cutting back and forth between things. You can create, create tension and drama by doing that. Um, with a 360 medium, every time there's a cut, you're now in a different place. So the cut does not work on the principle of, of, of juxtaposition. So in, in standard 2D film, what you have is a collision of images that create a meaning. It's the famous Kuleshev experiment, right? So, you know, hungry man looks at soup. I, I mean, if you see, no, when you see a neutral face and you see a bowl of soup and then your brain goes, ah, he's hungry. Take the same face. He's looking, you know, as a crying child. It's like, oh, he's full of empathy, you know, so forth. <laughs> um, with VR, you don't get that because when the, when the images collide from one cut to another in the 360 video, it's actually transporting you literally to another place. Um, the other thing that you lose, um, and these are all things that bother me. <laughs> so the, the other thing that you lose is the frame. You don't lose it so much when you watch a 360 uh, film on a 2D screen because the 2D screen becomes the frame. But if you watch the 360 movie in a headset, then there is no frame because you can look around in any direction and you have the agency to decide where you're going to look. Now, this is a problem for storytelling. And the problem is that basically I, the filmmaker, cannot control your gaze. Um, and that really bothered me. So when we made the Polar Sea, I thought, no, we gotta, we gotta fix this. We gotta, we, we have to have a, you know, a solution for this because I could be, you know, in the tundra in a wide open space and the viewer could be no looking God knows where. And in the next scene, I'm on a cruise ship with a pianist playing the piano and I want to see his fingers when I come in. I don't want to go face in the wrong direction because in the previous scene, I was looking somewhere else and again, whoa, lovely ambient music, not realizing there's an actual pianist in the room behind me. So we invented something called, um, we called it forced perspective at the time. We now call it, um, 
I don't know what we call it. We changed the name. So you mentioned directed. First yeah, directed. First, yes, thank you. Directed. <laughs> we call it. I made my research. Yeah, we're talking it, to. Yeah, we call it directed perspective now. Yeah. And what it really does is that um, you know you can determine in the offering. Uh, pretend you know the tool we developed is like a like a Final Cut Pro or a Premiere Pro, like a video video editing suite. Except on a frame, when the incoming cut happens, you can say this is the direction that I want the audience to look when the shot comes in. And presto, you have your frame back or you have your perspective back. And that's actually a really big deal. No one's done that for that medium. And we actually got a couple of patents for it. Not, not for the idea itself, but the technical ability to do so, which is actually quite complex. I won't get into it right now because it's a lot of nerdy tech stuff. Um, and then we developed this thing um, where we could enhance this even further um, by having what we call the exclusion zones. And now this is going to be a little hard to explain over a podcast, but I'm going to give it a try. You can always cut it out later. <laughs> I'm willing to let you talk because this is all very interesting. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Please. There was um, uh, 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 a producer uh, in, in Los Angeles who made this film on the life of Jesus. And it was this, you know, do you recall? It was like this hour-long epic shot of Chinachita in, in Italy. Uh, the cast. Um, oh, uh, the greatest story ever told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a VR story, really big, yep. right? And the opening scene is that you're in an underground tunnel, and a bunch of people, you know, dressed in the clothes around Jesus's time. This is after yeah. Jesus has died. Are going down this this tunnel towards you, and it has you. So what you naturally do is you turn to see where they're going, right? Now, that's not what the filmmakers wanted you to do because um, just after you turn your back on, you know, where they came from, the actual main protagonist of the film walks in, who is one of the apostles, you know, gets down on the ground and pulls a shard of some artifact up and starts pondering about this man that he knew, Jesus. Now, because you've now turned your back on this person, he becomes an omniscient narrator, <laughs> much to the great chagrin of the director. And they had to release the film that way. Um, and then I said, you know, that director's perspective would fix this, but we need one more element to it. Okay, now picture this. Close your, you know, close your eyes and imagine you're looking down a tunnel and a bunch of people are coming towards you and you're not turning away. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, this apostle comes up to you. Okay. Nothing happens, right? You're, you're, there's no cut, there's nothing. You're already looking in the right direction, right? But now, when you turn your back on that person, at that moment, there is a cut, and you're looking at the apostle, and it feels totally normal. So the system senses where you're looking. Mm -hmm. And if you're, and here's the thing, if you're looking in the right direction, you're probably not looking exactly in the right direction. You could be 10 degrees off, and then if we just did a cut, it would be a horrible jump cut. So we sort of figure out, we have these zones basically where it known as you're looking in the generally in the right direction to get the shot that you need to see. So how do you figure out when people are looking or not? Is there like an iris tracking? It, it's really just based on the position when you offer this. So you say within this range, if they're looking within this range, don't touch it. Mm -hmm. If you're looking outside of this range, do the cut. And what's amazing about that 
it's so simple, this idea, but what it enables you to do is when you watch a movie, uh, an immersive film, and there's this particular thing you really need the audience to see, there's no way they can get through the film without seeing what the director wanted them to see. But at the same time, and this is the beautiful part, it doesn't feel like agency was taken away from them mm -hmm. because they don't know whether there should have been or shouldn't have been a cut, and a cut is still accepted. So it's like a scene shift within the same location, um, and it works very nicely. So I'm I'm really proud of the fact that you know very early on, uh, we we sort of saw or I sort of saw what was necessary from a from a cutting point of view to make the medium better. Uh, but um, since then, I've now we're expanding uh, liquid cinema, partly also because you know the market for um, VR film or VR filmmaking is fairly limited. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're expanding what we're doing into a new platform, which we're calling uh, Jackknife XR, which does all of that, but then actually combines uh, things, um, you know, combines 360 or regular video or layers of video uh, with re real-time, you know, objects, 3D objects. Um, so does it include, um, that sounds great, because I was going to say this is very fluid, very fluid way of making films. So it makes sense you called it liquid cinema. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Now, Jackknife XR sounds very interesting, and you mentioned 360 video, but does that include interaction as well? It, it, um, it, it does, and it will much, much more in the future. Okay. And I don't want to get into Jackknife too much mm -hmm. as it's uh, it's not a publicly available product. Yeah. And, you know, it's always been tough with, with Liquid Cinema. You know, our customers were always large, you know, corporations, broadcasters, actually. Yeah. You know, that would license the software like Arte and BBC mm -hmm. and ZDF. They would license the software to have an end-to-end -end platform to produce this content and push it out on headsets and so forth. So we charged them big licenses. And it was always sad to me that we weren't well capitalized enough. Um, you know, I'm talking like 20, 40, 60 million mm -hmm. to create a software product that I could just give, you know, any filmmaker who could only maybe pay $50 for it, we wouldn't be around anymore. And so similar with Jackknife, right now, it is definitely a business to business product because it's really the only way that, you know, companies can can innovate on a product and, and survive. So I just say this out loud because right now I don't want to get all these calls saying, oh, I want to use Jackknife. It sounds fantastic. It's really more for, for institution. And is it going to require a big system to run it or is it going? Yes. 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 Uh, and that's, that, that's partly, and, and for, for, for those who hold out hope that one day it will be a product for, you know, uh, uh, let's say consumers, studios and consumers, which I would like it to be in the long run. Um, I would say this is sort of the path on the way getting, you know, to get there. Basically, a lighter version, uh, it, it, not a lighter version, but just one that can be economically given, uh, uh, to people, right? Because there's a cost involved. In of course. Um, but, um, to your previous question about, yeah, I mean, what it is, is, um, it's almost, here's the thing. And I know we're jumping around. You can always focus me back. No problem. Whatever you want to talk about. But, um, we know there are sort of metaverses out there, right? Like horizon and then you know like frame and you know all of these things people get together in these amazing looking environments but sometimes there's really nothing to do there 
and people just hang out and talk, and it's a sort of a communal space. Um, but I wanted to transform these spaces into places where story unfolds. Of course. Right? And, and right now we're working with universities. Uh, we're working particularly with Conestoga College, who have been fantastic. Uh, they have a very, uh, very forward-looking um, um, a VR lab there and a very forward-looking uh, exploration of immersive education there. So they've been wonderful partners to evolve things with. And our premise was that a university lectured, uh, because we're looking at that very particular use case, how to use the medium in a, in a storytelling uh, way or how to use Jackknife uh, in the service of storytelling ultimately. But giving a course giving a lecture is telling a story. It has a middle, it has a beginning, yeah. it has an end. And it also uh, means you have a presenter or a teacher and you have an audience, students in this case. Something that I like to call an asymmetrical relationship. So we're going to the horizon, everyone's kind of equal. Yeah, maybe there's a DJ playing music, but there isn't that arrangement of audience, presenter. It, it can happen in the space, but we are really developing software and systems to formally support that relationship because traditionally it hasn't been uh, 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 supported with the tools needed for it. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say too much because we're still, um, how do you say, we're not out. Yeah, but I, it, it's a great teaser. It's a great appetizer. It, it, it is a, it's a teaser. But what I wanted to say is what we're really evolving, if you could imagine it, yeah. it it'd be something like this. Um, you know how in a lot of metaverses, you're in a particular space mm -hmm. and somebody might show a slideshow or present an object or something, but the whole experience unfolds in this one space, right? So narratively, it's already housed in a limited place. So the story or what's being told can't go very far. In video games, for instance, oh my God, you can, just like in films, you can you can jump locations from one place to another and you can go to the past and the present and other concepts. So what we're evolving are actually tools for a presenter, an artist, a, a theater company, uh, you know, a, a, a corporation, you name it, mm -hmm. to say, and I don't know if I can have a good example, but the example would be, we are standing uh, inside a building and somebody's telling us something. As that person is telling us something, we're now standing in the middle of the desert. And, yep. and then somebody says something else and says, oh, you want to see a jumbo fly through the sky? And then they press a button and a jumbo flies through. And the next scene, you know, we're all sitting on seats in a particular place already. So we're developing software that is almost, and I hate to use this word, because it really reduces it uh, to something rather... Um, uh, banal, but it's imagine if you had something like PowerPoint or Keynote in three dimensions. Well, yeah, I was sorry, go ahead. Right? Uh, I just don't like it because it sounds so corporate, but because it can be, because you're not going to do necessarily great artistic things and keep. I was going to say, I'm a professor myself. Okay. Um, and I feel sometimes very limited in the way, you know, different platforms, in the way I use different platforms. I use PowerPoint. I show clips to my students, uh, audio clips, name it. <clears throat> but there are some times that I would just want, wish, hope to take them where I want to take them so they can understand what I'm saying, putting images to my words. Um, yes, at my pace, 
Because I, I feel like sometimes I'm teaching, but I'm also like an editor. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you're reacting to your audience. You're well, of course. as the students in their reception, and you might jump around, right? Yeah. Go I shouldn't interrupt them. No, no, it's fine. But that's exactly it. And it's talking to me because I feel like it's some. it's a tool that would give me and my other colleagues a lot of freedom when teaching, especially when you're teaching about immersive experiences. Right now I'm developing lessons for uh, a college where I work at. And um, it's basically asynchronous lessons. And it's very difficult to talk about VR when being asynchronous, especially when these people who are talking these, taking these lessons don't have access to a VR headset. Some people don't even know how to turn these on. Yes, it, it, honestly, it's complicated. It is complicated. The whole path into the experience on something like a quest is currently a nightmare. It is. Yeah. I agree with yeah. you. Uh, especially with all the many new updates and yeah. 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 So a lot of friction. It is a lot of friction. So I'm just thinking, and it's very frustrating when I'm making these lessons. Now, what you're telling me, I feel like is very liberating because I'm trying to picture myself, I don't know, and when I would use this months, years, I don't know, soon, I hope. Yes. But it's just something that I would definitely use to really try to explain to my students what I'm trying to tell them so they can better understand the concept. Yes. Or I could transport them where they should be so they can experience something when I mention it, mention it to them. At the moment, together. Yeah, even though yeah. if they're somewhere else in the world, yeah. if they're international students yeah. who cannot come or live in the classroom with me, yes. you know? Yeah. Because we're in a moment right now, post-COVID era, where hybrid learning is a nightmare. Yes, yeah. And that's what's so weirdly normal. Well, it's, it is, yeah. So I'm juggling here between present, um, a presential learning, and then dealing with Zoom, and yes. it's, it's a nightmare. You know, you know what we're evolving here? Uh, I would like to call a Zoom alternative. Yeah. Because uh, essentially we are allowing a, you know, a number of people um, to be live, interactive in a three-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So now instead of a Zoom wall of squares assaulting you and giving you cognitive overload and making you feel uncomfortably observed, yes. because you know, you're looking at 30 students or 30 peers yeah. and you feel like they're all looking at you. Of course, they're not all looking at you, but it feels that way and it's stressful and it's off-putting, Yeah. right? So imagine now if we, and this is what we're doing, uh, imagine if you take all those people into a three-dimensional space. And, but, but the other thing is that we, I mean, it's hard to show this on podcasts, but we really do it with video. Actually. So we don't have avatars, which are very abstract and are missing the nuance of the face and, you know, the, the kind of personal connection that you might have. What's really nice about using sort of video based avatars is that, um, if you're, let's say all sitting around the table, looking at the teacher, for instance, you don't, you no longer feel like everyone is staring at you because these screens turn towards where people are looking. So mm -hmm. you go, ah, okay, so Sally here is looking at Jane and Jane is looking over at George and now they're turning to me and talking to me. And you become that omniscient narrator you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, it, you, you get that, um, 
feeling of actually being in that land, also being able to hide for a bit, right? To be a fly on the wall in a lecture, not feeling like you're on cue, which is why a lot of students right now just switch off their video feeds, which, True. which leads to the professor sitting there and seeing, and, I mean, I've done it. I teach. Oh gosh, you bet. I did too. And then you see 30 uh, uh, feeds that are all black. Yep. And I tried to say, hey, come on guys, you know, it's like switch it on, but I gave up. You know why? Because it's too much. Imagine you're a student doing online, you know, uh, learning, and then you have to be on all day, observed. Of course you're going to switch it off. With what we are de developing, you don't have to switch it off. There's there's ways to sort of blend in in a way that is, and I think that'll be quite, um, it'll be quite revolutionary and interesting for remote teaching. And remote teaching is a big business for universities. It is, for sure. But... I think you want to get more it's not about no but it's interestingly and no but because to me it is this necessarily no because i could i can definitely picture this in uh mixed reality and in yeah. virtual reality of course you know yeah. next step it is next step so would you consider it to be the next step yes in uh, yeah. in mixed reality I'll, I'll take it no i'll take it even further okay um you know how we like to usually categorize all these modalities of immersion yes. and experience. Of course. Right? So we've got virtual reality, we have augmented reality, we have 2D, we have mixed reality. What I learned, going right back to the Polar Sea 360 days, one of the things that we did back 10 years, a decade ago, I guess, when we made this 360 movie, it actually sometimes segues into 2D footage. Um, quite naturally and seamlessly, where you got all the advantages of cutting and juxtaposition, and then you went back sometimes into an immersive moment where you got something else. Mm -hmm. I like to call this the lean in and lean out. Yeah. Um, a, a lean in and lean out experience. So what I'm saying is you lean in, um, but so, <laughs> so, so you lean in and basically uh, have an experience where there's something interactive or you have to do quote unquote work to look around, to interact. And then you leave out to take a break and let the medium sort of work on you. So I've learned that there is a flow, hence the word liquid cinema. That's Again, yeah. not, not only like a fluid way of thinking about narrative, but also a fluid way of going in between the various forms of media. Now let's go back to to um, mixed reality and virtual reality, mm -hmm. and and actually the 2D screen because on our platform some people might be in 2D, some people might be in VR, and they can all be together, right? You don't you don't have to have a VR headset, um, but now I mean think of think of the headsets that are coming out now. You've got the Quest Three, which is touted as a mixed reality headset. You have the Apple Vision Pro, which literally I haven't had one in my hand yet, but that has a dial on the headset that lets you go between yep. virtual and mixed reality. That means an experience might be both. Sort of lean in, lean out for interactive and sitting back, but also in and out of mixed reality and virtual reality. So again, for me, this is just a continuum of storytelling and our platform will make that possible. So imagine, let's go back to our example. Um, you know, it's about, I'm sorry, we got a really great example on the fly here. So it's like, oh, farming, and why not? It's okay, so <laughs> let's make it sound more exciting. Yeah, so, so, more so for instance, you are, um, it, let's say it's, it's, a, it's a 360 film 
in this segment of your story, and let's pretend we're still in the educational paradigm, and your professor says, hey, you know what, let's go out in the fields of Switzerland and the Alps. And you're there, and you hear the cows, you feel the, no, you don't feel, you see the sunshine, you hear the sand, you look around, you get a feeling for this natural environment, right? And then that person might say, hey, tell you what, they, you know, we have a little remote, which just like PowerPoint that, you know, can take you on and what we care about, what we'll care about more and more are seamless transitions between things. Can't tell you about it now, but all kinds of beautiful ways to get from one place to another without just a horrible cut, right? Now, we were all standing in this field looking in God knows what direction, um, and probably all in the center because you can't walk through a 360 uh movie. Now we're in a CG model in the next part of the story of a, I don't know, some milk processing plant, right? <laughs> we can actually now walk around it. It's uh, 3D objects, you know, uh, the people disperse all over the place. Um, and, the, and the beautiful part is when we go into it, we're already right, all in the right place already, right? Now the next moment slide world whatever you want to come comes along we're sitting in a lecture hall why would we let's say for this example we are but we're already all distributed on the right seats exactly right there wasn't well, the prof saying okay now let's sit down you find a seat you find so it's like a dream right now we're watching this and we're going to talk about the molecules in milk right and suddenly the whole thing melts away and you have a milk molecule but it's now in your living room or in your study where you are floating in midair. So we've gone from VR to mixed reality. No. And now we can touch it and turn it, and then it flows back into something else, and it goes on and on like this. It's this flow of narrative. Yeah, from what I understand, everything happens organically. That's right. Yeah. And, and at the volition of the people talking, like in the scene, somebody might say, you know, um, that what, what, what kind of grass do these cows eat and he goes and he goes oh you know what let's go back to switzerland <laughs> right it's like let's yeah. go three slides back but each slide is a world right it's not a slide i just like using that word because people can conceive of it because they know about it from from yeah. traditional presentations and now we're back again so it's totally non-linear but you're moving between worlds and moments and experiences in a directed fashion by a presenter and an audience but you're very organically at a real time, collaborative, yeah. seeing the other people as a shared experience, just like so. It, yeah, it is like like you know, PowerPoint in three dimensions. It is. Now we discussed a lot about screens, you know, different types of screens. When you said you directed the Polar C, you had the impression that oh, you're used to filming things. You have the screen, but now the screen disappears because of filming in three sixty degree, and. You know, Liquid Cinema solved one of the biggest problems in immersive storytelling. Yeah, like you said, directing attention through um, directed perspective that ensures the viewers will never miss an important piece of action ever again. Yeah. But I remember you mentioning at your Five Hours talk in many, Chief Value many years ago in 2019, I was there about how it gives directors control back in VR storytelling by bringing back the frame of the medium. Now, my question is, did you ever think that the frame ever truly disappeared? Uh, which one? In the new medium or in the old media? In the new medium. Okay. Because, you know, just as an aside, not to stall for the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the old medium, the frame is actually also not existed. Mm -hmm. That's true. Let's just stick with that for a second. Okay? Yeah. Because it's an interesting idea, okay, which will maybe lead to some philosophical discussions that we may have a little bit of time left for. So, 
everyone talks about the frame. Yeah. But your experience of going into movie theater is, are you aware of the frame? Yeah. No, right? It, because you're immersed. You're you're actually in a trance. Yeah, actually. You're immersed in trance, and the music actually transcends the sound, transcends the flame, uh, frame in this three-dimensional. It's a reverie. It, it, yeah, but you know, it's, it's even cooler than that, actually. Yeah. Because there were experiments done where um, there is something called, and this was only recently discovered, there's something called the border completion illusion. Okay. That sounds very smart. It, it, so <laughs> so we all have it, and it has to do with memory and perception, and oh. it's totally interesting. So they did this experiment where they put people in a room, and they had a, a window leading to a tree outside. Okay. So they were sitting in the room, there was a window, and, and they saw the tree. Then a week later, it would give people a piece, uh, people, um, a piece of paper and say, can you draw the tree that you saw? You know what everybody does? They draw a complete tree. But they only ever saw a small part of it because the rest of the tree was obscured. Mm -hmm. In their memory, they had the entire tree. They did the same thing. They gave them a picture of a bunch of garbage cans and picket fences, except they were cropped and cut off. Like the pickets, you know, the triangles at the top of the picket fence were not in the photo. Then only an hour later, they showed them the cropped and the uncropped photo. And they said, which photo did we show you an hour ago? And they said, that one. And they point to the one with the complete picket fences, not the one where everything was cut off, oh, which is what they were shown. Because in their memory, they had to complete it. So it's interesting when we watch a movie, we're actually watching a 360 because our brain is filling in everything beyond the periphery of the frame. Because we know there's a world there cognitively. Just like when you move through life and you're at a train station, your brain knows what's behind you, right? So we bring that. And anyway, so you asked me about yeah. when did I realize that the fame disappeared? So in the old medium, it has always disappeared. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about the new frame. <laughs> so the new frame, I, I think, is more like life um, yeah. in, in the sense because you're really being put in the position that you're being put in. Uh, in real life, like if you're standing in a train station in real life and you're standing in a train station in VR where you can turn around and actually see the back of the uh, train station, in that way, the frame is gone. I mean, we carry a frame with us, right? Yep. And actually, our cognition works like a framing focus device as well, right? So, you know, if I describe a story for you, you know, it's like, there's a man on the horizon. With his legal finger, he scratches a model on his chin, right? Close-up. You just saw a close-up. Exactly. You did this, right? Yeah. And our life is is a continuance of focus to the exclusion of everything else, right? So it's like we walk into a bar and see an object of our desire, and that's all we see. When it, <laughs> yeah. and, or we're in a giant forest, and the little squirrel is going up, but that's all we see. Like, we actually don't see the forest you know, for the trees or for the squirrel. It's true. In some case. So it's interesting. Um, maybe what it means is that when we're framing, focusing, which is part of what storytellers have to do is frame and focus to, you know, out of the chaos that surrounds us. But our brains fill up the holes. That's right. Yeah. So in an immersive medium, what you have to do is you have to provide the cues and the guides for that brain process to happen yeah right it's not like with the film you do it through a close-up and you know and you might still do that in, in an immersive way i mean of there's course distance to the camera but i think the process is different mm -hmm. so 
maybe it's more akin to the frame that we carry with us, in, in, you know, in real life. It, that's interesting. Maybe that's what makes it powerful. I agree. For you, what do you consider to be a successful VR experience? Oh, Jesus. Um, Even him doesn't know. <laughs> no, it, it's like, um, you know, I saw one, and I and I, you're gonna, you know, don't ask me details about it, or you're gonna catch me out here. But there's this one experience. Um, and I'm sure you know it. You, you know, it's the story of uh, is a wolf in the walls. It's called Wolf in the Walls. Wolf in the Walls. It's a VR or something like it's a VR experience where a little girl lives in a house where she believes there are wolves in the walls. And and it's, I thought, from a narrative point of view, it was a very successful um, experience uh, that people should check out. Uh, it 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 somehow, I, to be honest, just because I'm so busy with my company, I didn't go through the entire experience. Yeah. But the first 15 minutes of the experience were pretty magical. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. So you're in the scene. I mean. It's still a journey on rails, and I think we should talk about that. No, sure. You know, journey on rails yeah. and, and, and you know, volition and agency and all these kind of things. But We'll get there. Okay. Well, shortly. No, so, <laughs> so this is a journey on rails, but it didn't feel like one. No. So this girl has this idea that there are walls in the walls, let's say. And so she hands you a, a glass, a water glass, you know, like an empty water glass. Yeah. And she has one, too. So she takes it, puts it on her ear, and, and puts it on the wall. So you go, oh, maybe I should do that too. And the moment you do, you hear these things coming through the walls. Now I've just had a character that asked me to make a decision. Exactly. To experience, well, I could also not do it and just stand there and go, you know. Yep. And I'm sure she would maybe prompt me. I don't know, because I did it. <laughs> I didn't play it many times to sort of That's a play it out. Or there's a moment where your her invisible friend, a common trope in, in, in you know, with this problem begins to work and, and react to you in a way that's like the other due to technical, uh, technological limitations, but she's processing these jam jars and you're helping her, you're taking jam jar, getting a label, putting it on, giving it to her. And at one point there's a little accident and one of the jam jars rolls off the table. What's the first thing you do? You hunch over to grab it. Ascaritis. Without even thinking. It's like, and you go, whoa, this is so neat. You know? Wow. But then you also take the jam jars and throw it at her mother and everywhere and nothing reacts, right? <laughs> so because the experience assumes you're going to do it. And you do. Because you do. It's human nature. Right? Exactly. So maybe it's not meant for, you know, the 10% of the population is psychopathic and doesn't want to help you. <laughs> it's not made for them. Well, that could be a good experience to decide who is who. Yeah, exactly. Blade Runner. Yes, exactly. The turtle in this turning it back on you. Oh, I love that. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Um, and do you know where this experience is available? Yeah, it's on the quest. It's on the quest? It's called Wolves in the Walls or Wolf in the Wall or something like oh, that. Oh, I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah, it's good. Nice. It's good. Yeah. How much freedom of action do you think a VR experience should have to be considered a successful one? Okay, you know what? I'm not going to answer that in the light of VR specifically. Okay. Because, um, I mean, ideally, a lot... You know, of see, you would want while staying completely rooted in the story. And you know what? This is what I want to talk about. That's impossible. Okay. Mm. Now, I'm going to, I know you're working. Uh, on... No, but challenge me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Not an argument. 
Okay, let's have an argument. Well, let's do it. I'm going to be the naysaying, um, it's not possible guy, right? Okay. If I'm in deep in my heart, I'm not that. Yeah, in my heart, I think I haven't seen it work yet. Mm -hmm. I'd like it to be possible. But what are the hurdles? So let's let's dissect it philosophically what the, the hurdles for this might be. Okay. okay. Yep. So let's talk about the thing that we would all would like that we would, I mean, we're talking about a utopian idea that we would like. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this idea of choose your own adventures yes. has been around for a long time, mm-hmm. even before VR. Yeah. Yep. It's like a book and then you can go to other, you know, branches. With a dice. With a dice or whatever yep. it is, or based on your decisions on a branching narrative. This stems from a deep desire to want to be the hero. Like, okay, I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but you, my kids are. You watch Harry Potter, and then you want to be Harry Potter when the film ends, because you know you were Harry Potter the whole two and a half hours you watched this movie. You felt all the emotions, so it's only natural to think, "Man, I want a real life experience." where I feel like in a movie, except I get to do whatever I want, right? Exactly. Okay. Now, that's difficult. <laughs> that is. And it's difficult for a number of reasons. Now, we could argue about how that is difficult from a technological point of view, okay? But let's just argue about it from a philosophical point of view first. I'm going to be the naysayer, okay? The conclusion really is that there are two different kind of experiences, and we shouldn't... I'm. I'm pre-staging what my personal conclusion is, that there are two different kinds of story experiences and you shouldn't actually make one uh, have to be the other or uh, make it do what the other medium can do. Got okay? it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing under stone safety. Yeah, I'm this now. That's good. Um, so here's the thing. Um, if, because what we're really examining here together is this idea of, agency versus non-agency Correct. story. So if I want to be the hero in my story, ideally with total agency, um, we have the following difficulty. And it's important to reflect up upon how stories work on us. Okay. So let's take one step back. You know, earlier on, we talked about the trance that, yep. you know, okay. So ideally, in the most beautifully constructed film ever made, the ideal film, <laughs> Or that film that maybe we saw last week at the Cineplex where we came out and had that feeling in our throat, that chest feeling where we cried or laughed or it really touched us. Yeah. Like it really, really did something to us. That's what we want. It, it, it said something about the human experience that we really want, that we were really touched by. That's why we go to the movies. Okay. So how did that work? Well, you go to the movie, it gets dark. You go through kind of an induction phase, short credits come up, and you slip into a trance. You know, uh, if you, I, I, you know, I have my Apple Watch, it tells me I was sleeping for two and a half hours. I didn't move. Very insulting, but it's true, yeah. right? Literally, my body hasn't moved because my mind was entranced by this narrative. That means I had no physical agency, I had no intellectual agency. Um, I think there was a lot of interactivity going on and a lot of immersion going on in the sense that I didn't see the frame, that there was a parallel narrative inside me, like an emotional one being triggered by the film I saw because the emotions are not in the movie. 
there in me, mm-hmm. right? The, the, this hypnotic medium is pressing my buttons. A great director, a great writer, a great editor is pressing all my buttons. The great transmeister to make me cry and laugh like a little puppet, like they expected me to, right? Because it's following, and this is the important part, because it's following a millennia-old formula of storytelling which helps us identify with a hero, the choices of the hero, and the choices of the hero becoming the destiny of the story that comes to an inevitable conclusion built on some kind of a theme or, or, or argument that the film is trying to tell you about human nature, okay? Which means, now this is the important part, that the decisions that the protagonist takes as they uh, butt up against forces of antagonism, like the antagonist, um, they are now, those decisions are inevitable. They're not arbitrary, right? They, they come out of the character. That character can only decide that one way because of who they are, because of their flaws, and then hopefully that's how they heal. I like to liken this to um, shooting an arrow. So you grab a bow, you take an arrow, you shoot the arrow. The moment the arrow leaves that bow, it's going to land where it was ordained to land. Yeah. Because the forces of gravity and physics and the direction where you pointed it, it cannot land anywhere else on this planet because of those rules. Imagine that's narrative, okay? Now we want to be the hero in our own story. You really see the problem, right? Um, because, and the way I'm framing this actually. Another frame. Which is slightly unfair <laughs> is what I'm actually trying to say. Hey, I as a filmmaker, who has experienced the power of linear film, the emotional power of linear film. I want my interactive experiences to be as emotionally powerful as that, right? So what the fuck do I have to do to make that happen? So that experience you described to me at the Cineplex you just had, you presented it to me as a passive experience. Oh, it's not. Because you're sleeping. Yeah, okay. Uh, let me let me wipe that away for a second. <laughs> Good point. I'm, I'm, that's very smart of you to point that out. I, I take it back. Oh, okay. That's not a slight lie. Because, you know, when the internet came around and when new mediums come around, it's always new medium great, old medium bad. Yes. New medium active, old medium passive, right? Okay. You are actively giving yourself over to a storyteller. You are actively submitting to this moment. It, watching a movie is not passive at all. It is about as active as you can be. And your brain is so busy filling in that frame. Of Order, illusion, completion. Now, I'm just being the devil's advocate at that argument. We're so you're right. So you're right. But we're still now fast forward to the problem where yeah. now we want to use agency to make you, the audience member, uh, you, you know, the hero in the story itself. Now, here's the problem. How do we do that? I mean, you, I, everyone is racking their brains of how to do it. Now, if we think, it depends what the goal is. If the goal is to just have fun and experience agency and just experience the fun of agency, that's fine. If the goal is to elicit a deep, you know, cathartic emotional experience like we do in the movies, that might get a little harder because now... There's a couple of things happening. Remember we said there's a trance in the movie. Yeah. Well, actually, in a video game, you can be in a trance. It's, it's like an action. Of course, like you're shooting things, blah, 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 blah. But I think, and I could be wrong, we can discuss this. I think, I mean, I personally haven't, I've had emotional experiences in games. Maybe sometimes 
during that lean in, lean out experience, you go through a whole bunch of actions. You're leaning in, then you're leaning out and maybe seeing something that is slightly more linear that touches you. And I think, by the way, that might be the key, mm. right? Because in the moment of interaction itself, and I'm not talking uh, more uh, quote-unquote primitive action, like I'm shooting something, I'm, yeah, 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 I'm jumping to the side. That's not going to lead to the deep emotional stuff that I'm talking about. That is our, uh, what is it, our amygdala, or which is the part that... Amygdala, our blog guy, Yeah, that part of our yeah. thing that I hope we all have. We <laughs> still have. Because, like, I see a snake on the floor, I jump. Because if I intellectually thought, oh, me thinks that is a snake, it would have long bitten me, and I would be dead, right? Which is why VR is so strong. Beneath? VR. VR. Why yeah. VR is so strong, because yeah. when you see that snake, you jump. That's right. Right? You don't think. When you see a snake in a movie, you might recoil automatically, but I think the process of it is more intellectual. Is that, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely. That's one of the powers of VR, right? So they have that power. Um, so, you, you know, so you still have to, you still have to react viscerally um, to the things you see. I forget the point I was making. Um, yes. So I was talking about the kind of, um, the kind of interaction. Um, so, so we were, I was distinguishing between the actions where you're reacting, bodily reacting, versus the kind of things that elicit deep emotion. And I think perhaps we elicit deep emotion in that sort of translate state in the state in the linear medium, because we're not clicking on something. We're not making intellectual decisions. We're not weighing intellectually. Should I take path A? Should I take path B? Should I take path C? Blue pill or right elf? Yeah, because then the transcendence breaks down, at least for a moment, right? And if it breaks down more and more, because we have more and more agency, the less and less we'll be in a position to sort of feel those things in a way where it just works upon us. Mm -hmm. The second thing that makes that hard, specifically to the VR medium, is when you're watching 2D screen-based media, it's at a distance from you. So the screen is, like in VR, you're in it, you're in the world. And a 2D screen, it's separate from you. Now that means less immersion, right? But it also means the ability to project your feelings on something external because it's external to you. That's why people love horror movies so much because they live these fears by proxy. Yes. But, exactly. And they leave the movie theater without being hurt, yeah. without being murdered. Yeah. Yes. And in VR, Ugh. it's 10 times more scary. Well, have you ever played uh, Five Nights at Freddy's in VR? I've heard about it and decided not to. It is <laughs> actually quite scary. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I'm sort of jumping all over the place here a little bit. But these are, I think these are the verbals where more and more agency, um, in a way, breaks that you know, sense of catharsis. And then the problem also that I think we identify with stories that have sort of perfect shape around them, you know, in the traditional Hollywood sense, yeah. the novel sense or the myth sense, where agency suddenly discombobulates the structure of it uh, in a way that it's hard for our hearts to follow, you know, the schema. So there is a linearity built into Judeo-Christian story structure um, that, 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 it, that poses a challenge to, to agency. I don't know, how do you feel about that? I'd love to...
That's the thing. I figured out that when you're being given given too much freedom in a VR experience, you lose sometimes the sense of the story. So you need you need that agency. You need that freedom of action, freedom of movement, name it. You need it, but in a very subtle way. Just like you mentioned with that little girl who takes a glass and put it, you know, against a wall. And that triggers you to do it. You, you have the choice not to do it, but your human nature tempts you to do it. And that's what I figured out when writing my dissertation. I was looking for that perfect, well, my kind of perfect that I'd like to think as a perfect experience where I was given enough freedom of action to truly feel like I was a spectator, mm. a spectator and an actor. Mm. And then I figured out in different contexts that when you're being given too much freedom, you lose it at the same time. And also when you're being a little bit guided, depending on the type of experience you're having, you find more freedom in that guidance. It's a, yeah, it's making, yeah, I think you're, you know what? I think you're right. This is an interesting place to end up in this discussion mm -hmm. because it, while you were saying that, I was thinking maybe the trick in, in narratives is, and I agree with you. I actually agree with what you're saying here and taking that a sense further, which you probably have, you know, in your, in your dissertation. But what I take away from that is what if we create a desire and intent in the viewer through the experience. So we're yeah. already pushing them psychologically in a particular direction. And then we give them the agency outcome to express that desire. Exactly. Right? Yep. And at that moment, that would feel organic. And we would be doing something that we feel we need to do in the scene. Now, designing that is I think it would take a great master. Of course, but at the same time, he's from AI. <laughs> think about it. You're in a um, library. You have tons of books. You have tons of things you can interact with. A VR experience, like I remember as a teenager, I, I was fantasizing about a video game or an experience that would propel me into a different world that I would actually call the world which would allow me to do everything I want in this metaverse, just like in Ready Player One. Yeah. But what will I get from this? You know, what will I do? Well, I'll just roam around one little bit. It's just a simulation. I might just have a lot of moral or, yeah. Exactly. Now, in, in, in this library that I'm trying to, you know, make you, what I'm trying to immerse you in, you have these tons of books you can interact with, but are you going to grab every of these books? Are you? Oh. No, you're not. Oh. But you might be tempted to look in a certain direction that you feel will forward the narrative. Yeah. You know. Might attract your eye. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we all know these little um, tricks in video games, you know, that highlights a path where yeah, you're supposed yeah, that's to. Right. Yeah. So you could pick out the other books, but it would be kind of does and not so interesting. Yeah. You just look at the cover, you're like, whatever, you get it back yeah. and then you yeah. move on. But that's where, I, before we started the podcast, I mentioned Heavy Rain. Yeah. You know. So going back to the library, just hold that thought for a second. Yeah. It would presuppose that we're on a quest, that we have a mission. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're not in the library by accident, but there is something in it that we're searching out. A murder happened. Yeah. And we have the agency to find. Yeah. So as our desire to find something gravitates us towards the book, 
we have the agency to pull out all these other books, but that's the one we really want, right? So that would be maybe a moment where that feeling of agency would be very exciting. Yeah. And you feel oh, satisfied. So back to heavy rain. Back to heavy rain. When I said there is a murder, I mean, uh, not a murder, but there's, uh, you have the decision of deciding if you want to kill that person or not to avenge your, your son that was kidnapped. Yeah, I don't know if you. It's been a long time. Okay, I remember it being pretty agnostic. And you have um, these scenes where you can, um, you know, either uh, take care of the person or reject the person. Yeah. When that person is going to, um, I don't know, like a breakdown or something. Yes. And that decision will influence the course of the narrative. And you have, I think, up to twenty different endings. Okay. So that, to me is the type of agency I would love to see in a virtual reality experience. It's interesting because, you know, I've talked before about um, stories really having a thesis, therefore a moral message or a theme. That's important. You know, people always say um, theme is a word like love, but it actually isn't. Uh, a theme is uh, if you love someone, let them go, right? Exactly. It isn't just love. It is a thesis. Like, I believe that if you love someone, you will let them go, right? So the whole film becomes a moral universe. Not so much to teach you that, or yeah, maybe to convince you of it, but to maybe also understand how you would react under similar circumstances. So when you finish watching this linear film, you go, okay, the next time, right, primitive, the next time I love someone, I'll let them go. I get it, right? But it's interesting what you're positing. I could see that a multi-branching narrative could serve to do the same thing in myriad ways by showing them the alternatives of the argument of what happened yeah. if you don't let somebody go exactly. as you love, right? I want to see what happened. Yes. So it might not, it's, it's, might, it's sort of a way within the same narrative work to see the thesis and the antithesis play out, right? Yeah. I, I mean, in films, you do it consecutively because you're showing, you know, the flip side of the argument of the theme all along the film to the conclusion that wins your argument, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in Heavy Rain or an example like that, maybe, and I think I agree with you that you don't need tons and tons of agency and you probably don't need, I mean, 20 different endings is already pretty amazing. But actually, I, I'm, you know, I don't know if you were such a fan that you played it to get all 20 endings. I played it right? once. Okay, there you go. But, but you still had the feeling that your decisions influenced the outcome yeah, in a way. Of course. So I'm thinking, you know, the problem with branching narratives is, is the propagation of probabilities, right? So, you know, you have your first branching decision. Now you have two story paths. Then on each of these, you do two more. And now you've got four and eight and 16. And, you know, it gets pretty unwieldy at some point. And there are ways to rein it in, of yeah. course, right? But, um, but, it gives you narratively the possibility to, you know, maybe you're starting to convince me here a little bit that, you know, there might be a possibility where agency can be light, not infinite, and that it still directs us down a story path mm -hmm. that is satisfying, that doesn't, and this is the important part, that doesn't feel like Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. Right? Because it's made, maybe it's based more on causality. I do that. Well, yeah. Therefore, that happens. Exactly. But the choices that I'm giving you are already aligned with the theme. They're not arbitrary, like, oh, I'm going to blow up that building, oh, and that has nothing to do with story. You know, that it, 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 it's still within, I think it's really important to keep it within the theme universe, right? That Of what you're trying to say, what you're trying to prove, that isn't just cool to have a branching narrative and go in different directions, but that it all adds up to what, what was... 
the central theme of heavy rain. Uh, um, yeah, what, how far would you go for the person you love? Okay. Yeah. And would you say that was embodied in all of the decision throughout the experience? Personally, yes. Yeah. From the decisions I made, yes. Because I followed my own morals, my own, you know, perception of love. Yeah. Yeah. And when you play in different characters, because in Heavy Rain, it isn't just one character, it's actually several characters. Correct. And that makes it interesting because it's like this experiment. <clears throat> I guess what you don't, I think what you're avoiding by reigning in the interactivity is chaos. Right? I mean, the whole point of narrative is that we create some order in the chaos that surrounds us. So we like order. We like a story. I mean, terrible to mention in the in this in this discussion uh, <laughs> that that let's say the war that we're currently seeing, yeah, you know, between Russia and the Ukraine, between Israel and Gaza, right? There is a total chaos of war. And yet people are creating order with their various propagandic, storylines of what it actually means, right? And, and, you know, each side has its own way of reorganizing the, the, the chaos of war to fit the story, to make it clear. Because if you're a soldier, uh, you, you need to know what it is that you're fighting for, what you're killing for, right? So that, sorry for the worded example. No, that makes sense. But it, it's taking the chaos of war and ordering it in a narrative that allows you to make decisions and carry out orders or feel good about what you're doing. Um, and so, ugh, terrible to make the jump to <laughs> narrative games. Oh, that is terrible. I, I'm sorry. I feel really bad about this. Um, that was a bad example. But, um, you know, I think it's the same thing. It, it, the order is what creates the structure of the story and the meaning of the story. Otherwise, it is chaos. Man, we don't like chaos because it scares us, and it's not fun, and it's not fun. You know what? <clears throat> I have a very funny example because one of the experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the because um, I I for my dissertation I tested several experiences based on an artistic, educational, and entertainment uh, context. Mm. I the VR experience that I think embodies exactly what I've been. I would. Let's use the word fantasizing about when it's coming yeah. when it comes to spectate spectatorship is uh, an experimental VR experience that was made by one of my colleagues at York, on uh, David Heim. He created After Dan Graham. It was at Five Rs when you presented that that talk in 2019. You embody, you know, like an android type of person character with no color, no facial expressions, nothing, like a dummy, you know. Okay. Um, you go into a room, you are prompted to press on a button that will activate a camera, surveillance camera that is going to film you and show you your moves, whatever you do through a camera. Now what's through a TV, sorry. Now what's interesting is there is a four, four second delay into what you're doing. And every eight second, I believe there is another version of you. 16 seconds ago, I believe that's going to come through that room and it's going to reproduce exactly what you've been doing back then. And then it's going to happen in a loop. And then you're going to see yourself in the past and it's recreating everything you've been doing. When doing this, you have the freedom to do whatever you do at the moment, at the moment, because, and there is nothing to interact with. It's a white, white walled rooms with nothing in it. So you're able to do whatever you do. And what I was trying to do here is to avoid my past self. But it's too late. 
well, here it's been as already you you can lay. Well, you can do it at the very beginning. Yeah. But when it gets too crowded with your own past selves, ah, uh, it's very hard to do. Fantastic. It is fantastic. Yeah. So I made the decision of trying to avoid my past selves. Selves. But it becomes hard when there's like 25 of you in that room that's not bigger than your office. Yes. So. How did you do it? Well, I had to end because it was becoming impossible. Is that the lesson of the piece? Well, yeah. <laughs> Basically, some people were dancing with themselves. Yeah. Some people were just standing there. Still. Still and doing nothing. Yeah. So it's very interesting. But the only thing you had to make a decision about is to press that darn button at the beginning, at the beginning that started yeah. the experience. And that, to me, is total spectatorship and agency. Yeah, yeah. Because you become the master of your own story. You create it in this sandbox. Yeah. And yeah. it's amazing. But you're deciding whether to create it or not create it. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like... Uh, but 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 once but it's interesting because once you're in, you have agency of what you do, but the outcome itself, over it, you don't. Right, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. it's sort of a prototypical idea of how to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. So to me, that's very interesting, and I ended up talking about developers who create art galleries in VR, who create experiences at the Royal Canadian Regiment Museum that recreates the Battle of Vimy. Yeah, you know, and you walk around in the trenches. But it's like a walking simulator where you don't have really a lot of control over where, what direction you want to go. Yes. And it was a little annoying because I lacked that freedom because I wanted to educate myself a little bit more with my surroundings. I, I, in a way, you're learning, and that I don't know the experience, but you're learning facts about history, right? Yep. I, it, uh, are you, and sometimes, you know, museums will, will do that. They'll create exhibits and then... You walk around and then they give you snippets of a human story that you might latch on to sort of understand the human dimension of it. Yeah. But it never becomes as immersive as you would like it to be because it's still more conveying information, isn't it? Well, the only thing that, you know, you're being given is just to accept where you are and basically look around. Yeah, yeah. Because you are able to look around and seeing the bombings and seeing, you know, hearing the the bullets, you know, whizzling through your ears, yeah. you know. So that the only agency is just to look around, but yeah. you're being educated. Yes. But uh, so, and I tried another like VR uh, documentary experience, the Martin Luther King one. Yeah. MLK now is the time. Yeah. And there's this moment where you are embodying a person uh, of color in a car and you are being, you know, pulled over by police officers and they're asking you to put your two hands on the wheel because, you know, something could happen to you, as we all know, unfortunately. You know, that, like you, your hand, you see your hands and you can put them on the wheel? Yeah, because okay. it's a hands-free uh, experience. Okay. So it's up to you to decide if you hold the wheel or you let go of it. And that is amazing. And that's going to be a big difference in outcome. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, it's not trying to make you empathize because you can never be, as a white person, Yeah, I cannot. It wants to make you see what happens, right? Because, but yeah. I think it makes you want to understand mm -hmm. the situation, mm -hmm. you know? And it does. And it does. Yeah. Yeah. That's strong. That It is very strong. So, so do you think it's as strong? or stronger than if you were to make a movie 
of a character who has to make that decision. I think it is. As strong. As, no, I think it's stronger. I think it's stronger. VR is stronger in this case because seeing a movie like this, a documentary, I see an actor doing it. You know, yeah, but we don't think of the actors as actors, right? Like we, I know the special disbelief that's made well. But when being a spectator, you're the spectator of what is happening, mm -hmm. but you're actively involved in it. You're an actor. And stepping in the shoes of someone else. Yeah, and you decide mm -hmm. what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps you understanding the outcomes, the possible outcomes. You know, I'm struck by the fact that it's very hard to quantify that and, you know, prove it because, you know, different things mean different things to different people. I know. Right? Yeah. So I think, and I'm guilty of this. I think we, I think we need to get away from, you know, look, this other medium has had, what, 130 years to figure out how to push our buttons. Um, the interactive medium or storytelling medium has been around for maybe, well, for a while. Yes. Course. But, but really in what it couldn't provide now with technologies like AI and real time. And I think AI could play a huge part. I think it's just like branching narrative. And branching narrative. To have a discussion with someone in VR in a game. Yeah. But what I was trying to say mm. is, and I've been guilty of this rather than doing this comparative thing, which I just put you on the spot for it. Is it as? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a curiosity. Of course. But the real question is, what can we do with the new medium to, and with agency and interactivity to elicit um, and get people to think about the human condition? That would be my next question. Which is what you're saying. Yeah. This Martin, Martin Luther King experience is doing very effectively. Yeah. Uh, using agency. Mm -hmm. On rails, limited agency. Yes. In moments where it makes sense. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Like it's not an agency where you can go out and repair the engine of the car. Because that's or open the door and run. Or open the door and run because you can't. You're still trapped. Exactly. In that, in that story. Yep. Right? But you mm -hmm. feel like you're experiencing. Yeah. It, it's a nice way to look at it. So what do you think? Like what's your dream of VR experience or XR experience? Let's take it. Let's stick to VR. Yeah. I definitely Oh my God. Um. You know, lately I've been so focused on, on, you know, getting real-time systems with people talking to each other. To well, you put me on the spotlight with that previous. Yeah, why should so? Yeah, so nothing. Yeah, fair. It's fair. You know, I could sit here and think for ten minutes silently, and you can cut it out, so I don't actually feel like I'm under pressure. What would be the real? What would be a VR? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what, what I would want to get out. Uh, of a VR experience, okay. and it, it's a bit of a, and hopefully it doesn't sound like a cop-out, but the sense of, of awe and wonder that you feel by being in a place yeah. or in a mind space. It doesn't have to be like a literal mm -hmm. thing. And the ideal story-based VR experience yeah. we're talking about is one that would unfold a bit like a dream to me, that... I still feel like I'm guided within the vision of another person's perspective because, hey, I don't like to see my own perspective. I know my perspective. I want my perspective and my way of the look looking at the world to be challenged. So I would like to be a there to be a storyteller involved, not in the traditional sense, but somebody is going to show me something, convince me of something, yeah, make me feel some, make me feel something. So the ideal narrative. Uh, VR experience would elicit strong, what I call subtle emotions in me. Not necessarily horror or fear, mm -hmm. but you know that lump that you feel 
in your throat yep. or that feeling you feel in your chest that feels noble in some kind of way, right? That makes you, yeah, feel ennobled. That makes you, takes you out of yourself. Um, while at the same time, having the feeling that I was able to navigate a world with my body and my, my presence as if I was part of it. Um, and I suppose I could be a bystander. You know, it's like, what, which one is it? Uh, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz in um, the Shakespeare piece. They're these two bystanding characters. Oh, gosh. I don't know. The action unfolds. So you could either be one of them, you know, as the kings and queens, you know, go through their action, make the world turn. You're kind of there to bear witness to it. And I feel something. Yeah. Or are you that person who is changing the world because you're the lead character in it? I don't know. doesn't matter as long as I think I get the things out of it that I just mentioned. Yeah. That would make sense. What do you think VR will look like in the future? Now that we're less 10 years uh, since its mainstream inception. Yeah. Now, remember, <clears throat> it took around 13 years for cinema to be uh, institutionalized. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, you mean? Yeah. You know, first time we... Um, the first public screening came up was in 1895 in Paris. Mm -hmm. And it was institutionalized, I believe, in 1907, 1908. Yeah, that's right. So the first mainstream, uh, you know, inception of VR was in 2016. Now we're in almost 2024. Mm -hmm. So we still have a, a lot, uh, some time yes. to figure it out. What do you think it will look like? In how many years from now? I don't know, in the future. In the future. Okay, well. Whatever the future means to you. Whatever the future means to me. You know, it's very hard, like, people who, you know, even the best science fiction writers in the world had a very hard time predicting how the future would really unfold. Yeah. Because our limited event horizon is really based on extrapolating from the technologies that lie at our feet. True. And then, you know, pretending to see what they would do. Like, nobody could imagine that when you had your iPhone and an app store that it would be anything but a bunch of cool utilities and the ability to call people. And actually, in the end, it completely changed our world where we use it to date and order food and basically you can't live your life without it. I don't think there's any science fiction writer who predicted that. Having said that, <laughs> doing exactly that by extrapolating from you know the early signs of new technologies that are sort of strewn in our immediate vicinity and imagining... Um, I guess also bringing prejudice and old thinking to it, what we could do with them or hoping or imagining what we could do with them is that I think AI will be very interesting. Yep. So in that sense, yeah. um, I mean, what we're seeing right now in the realm of AI is that in real time, you can have a conversation with, with NPC characters who react to you as if they know the world that you're in, as if they might have a different view of the world that you're in. Um, that they share knowledge with you, that they have unique knowledge um, that you can converse with. And that as a storyteller, you can control yeah. in terms of what they know at what moment in your narrative. So even there, you have control. Um, then I'm seeing that you can create images on the fly. Uh, you know, a year ago, it was still a little more jokey. Now I can go into something like Midjourney and create a photorealistic scene documentary scene of a market in India in 1980 shot on Kodachrom. I'll get it. And, you know, at first glance, you could put it in front of people and they go, oh, cool. That was shot in the 80s. They wouldn't know. Hmm. They wouldn't know it was AI. Now you can take that image 
and put it into software called, you know, Runway, um, where suddenly these images come alive. So you could, okay, it takes a while to process right now, but in the future, you know, when there's quantum computers, um, <laughs> you know, you know, working, um, that I think you could create that video stuff in real time, or even more, you could create photorealistic worlds that are being created in real time that yep. you can navigate through. Um, that gives us an unprecedented ability to give agency, to create agency oriented stories because right now our problem is that when we create branching narratives, as we talked before, we have the um, problem of permutations. Right. So now we can only say, okay, okay, we're just heavy rain had 20 endings where you and I are sitting here going, holy moly, 20. Yeah. Can you imagine all the production they had to do? Because before AI, you had to create the media of all these probable things. Whereas with AI, it could suddenly become a lot more fluid mm -hmm. where these endings are sort of stochastically determined permutations on the outcome of of your decisions and how the characters might operate. It's not going to be branch narrative anymore. It's It, it won't be branch narrative. Well, it might be in its inception structure by the authors, yeah. right? Because I do think if you want anything resembling a semblance, you need some kind of mm, act structure or some kind of rising action structure that still feels narratively satisfying to us. Because that's literally what we need. I mean, yep. uh, even the way we tell each other stories every day, you know, I see an accident on the corner and I come and tell you about it. It's going to have a dramatic form. I'm right. thinking of um, of an instant investigator interrogating a suspect. For instance. Yeah. yeah. And uh, AI generates what the suspect will say. Yeah. And you or have... Not say. Or not say. Yeah. And you as the investigator yourself interrogate and talk to that person. Yeah. And this person, this suspect will react to what you say because... AI generates it. Yeah, yeah. Now that would be, yeah. yeah. And, and I think what, what I was getting at right now for all those permutations, you have to create the footage. That yeah, yeah. Months to put together, but if you have an AI that can conjure up a photorealistic or stylized reality, uh, right now it'll take a couple of minutes for you know a little bunch of video to be created or or three three D model, which are still very poor, being created. But imagine if you have something like quantum computing. Um, where that can be conjured up in real time. Not only, I think, are we going to get mind-blowing narratives, which aren't even just about depicting reality in a pedantic kind of way, but sort of psychological dreamscapes. Yeah. The other thing that I think could be done in that way is in the realm of transition. Okay. Now, I'm not mentioning this gratuitously. So films are predicated on the cut, right? And... It's also because you have this production, this technological production necessity where you have to go out and shoot scenes with your camera. You bring film strips back or, you know, pieces of video and then you have to cut them together. Right. And now with the advent of computer graphics and CGI and all of this, we can create uh, um, transitions that are nice. But we're used to the cut. We're lazy. Like cut, cut, cut. Right. Interestingly, uh, if you allow me a slight digression, Hitchcock who, you know, that famous shower scene with, I don't know, a hundred gazillion cuts that puts it together. In the film Vertigo, 
uh, there's a scene where two actors meet each other again after a long time, and he's going to take us back into the past. What does he do? This is a big cue for VR and the future of AI and transitions. So what he does is he circles the camera around the two protagonists, and while he does it, there's a background projection, and the background changes yeah. around them. So he's dealing with spatial layers of meaning in order to do what you normally do in terms of juxtaposition with a cut. So I could imagine the cinematic aesthetic of a future real-time generated environment is where the surroundings morph uh, around, you know, uh, around you in layers, creating meaning and abstraction. And why do I like that? Because I do not think that the future of storytelling in virtual reality is about the emulation of reality. Okay, because stories have always been a condensation of reality to save time. Okay, yeah, like like we have to condense stories into smaller units. Let's say we take, uh, I saw the movie Napoleon. Okay, Ridley Scott's Napoleon had to condense the the forty or thirty years of the span of the story into two hours. Now an AI-driven VR experience. Yes, you could keep coming back and live this adventure of thirty years with Napoleon, but you won't. It's going to have to be, you know, I don't think people's attention spans are going to be longer either. You still have to bring the story down to something, which yeah. means you have to find an aesthetic way of condensing time in the narrative to compact it, to make it interesting while still giving you that agency. And I think the answer in that will be a new visual vocabulary. Of course. It uses this idea of transitions, the way that Hitchcock had it in, in, um, in Vertigo, when you did this circular camera and the background was changing. Uh, another movie that does that, if anyone wants to go out, terrible film, but visually very innovative. Uh, Wachowski um, brothers or brother and sister, um, uh, Speed Racer. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So there is an aesthetic where suddenly we bring the metaphorical back. You know how I said at the beginning that film and in, in the novel, they're metaphors for reality? I think virtual reality needs to become a metaphor for reality again. I agree. Right? Yeah. And that's when it becomes interesting. Just like the Matrix was. Just like the Matrix was, right? So it's not about reproducing reality in a pedantic kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's about making it significant uh, by emphasizing the parts that are interesting for your story. But that's why I think all these technologies will come together. What form will it ultimately take? I don't know, because it will need such amazing talent and powers of putting it together. I mean, look, the novel, the theater, film, as hard as they are, they're still easy in a way where I've put a bunch of people in a room, I shoot it with a camera, I know where they're standing, I know what the story is, it's linear. And look, in, look at all the trouble we've gotten ourselves into around agency and interactive narrative. And it's like this Gordian knot that is so hard to unravel. Now, bring in all these other possibilities. Who's going to do that? Is it an AI that will have to create the stories for us? Because only it would have the imagination to be able to utilize its, itself yeah. to do things that we can't even imagine, but that we somehow steer. I have no idea. I have no idea. Now, hearing you... rain hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, but now hearing you saying this, I feel like the storytelling rules that we know, they feel antiquated by now. Yes and no. Actually, yes and no. Uh, I would say they're antiquated 
they will be antiquated in their practical application. Yep, that, exactly. Right. Yep, that's what I but mean. But they're not antiquated in their principle of how narrative works upon our brains because our brains are millions of years old. Mm -hmm. And if you don't make the narrative to fit our cognitive process of our brain, then you cannot change and innovate. It's like, look, how many, it, it's like this. We all want to invent new types of foods, right? But we have not invented a new grain. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and for stories, it's the same thing, right? We're going to invade, f invent fantastic ways of telling stories, but ultimately, what is the recipient of that story? We are our millennia-old brain, and it will only parse information and narrative and story in the way it was meant to. You are not going to change humankind itself to adapt to a new form of storytelling. The new form of storytelling has to adapt to humanity. Otherwise, it won't work. True. What's next for you, Thomas Wilder? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I would like to... I'm, I, I'm actually... Um, it's funny with all this interactive stuff. I'm writing a, 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 a feature film oh. now. Interesting. And and uh, just because it's nice to flip back and forth, um, I'm just going back to something very linear and, you know, that I enjoy doing as a balance for all the other things I'm doing, which is always how it's been, actually. Of course. And I think keeping your feet in both kind of, both media, it, I think is really important. I think that would be my advice for people also in interactive media to also do linear media because you... In understanding the true power and the mechanics of linear media, can you only explore um, interactive media? Help with others, creating a help about our knowledge, more realistic, you know? I agree. Because there could be great linear portions within your interactive piece that are necessary to elicit emotion, right? So, absolutely. Yeah. Thomas Walner, it was a great argument. It was great arguing with you. Uh, uh, uh. It was great having you on my show. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Thank, Thank you. you.